Amen. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. It's good to have my buddy Richie here. Hey. My friend Justin Taylor runs a blog titled Between Two Worlds. I've mentioned it before. Uh, for, for Justin, the title captures the, the tension of leaving between, living between this world and the world yet to come, right? The tension of the already and the not yet. And I love the title because it captures how we have often felt over the years living between two cultures. In Uganda, it's not America. Or in America, it's not Uganda. We can feel caught between the two, missing each one. The family and friends that are represented on both sides of the world for us. But I think it's true to one degree or another for all of us, that all of us have been caught between two worlds. And we all have within us a longing for home, for those worlds to be brought together. And not just a longing for any home, but a home where we are loved and we are known and we are accepted, a place where we're provided for, where we're protected, where we're secure. We were made to desire home. Desire home to be a place of peace and a place of rest because we were made for peace and for rest. Yet we live in a fallen world and we live among a fallen people. And our battle with sin, whether it's our own sin or sin in the lives of others, keeps these longings at the forefront. Peace, rest, love acceptance. Last week, Peter mentioned how he longs for the battle to be over, to finally enter into God's Sabbath rest. And as we await the final putting off of the body, of the flesh, we wait dependent on the one who is our rest, the Lord of Sabbath and the giver of Sabbath rest to his people. So in the here and in the now, we live in this daily battle, this tension between believing and living according to truth, believing, believing and living according to lies, seeking rest, struggling in weariness, pursuing peace in the face of genuine warfare. And the enemies are many, sin, death, and Satan all of which are ready to capture us and spiral us down into the pit of depression. And depression and despair are genuine enemies. Keeping people bound, and wandering in darkness, longing for true Sabbath rest, true home, where we are set free, where we are whole. That reality struck Laura Beth and I right in the face on Monday as we found ourselves in a funeral home surrounded by hundreds of people grieving the loss of a young mom, of a daughter. She'd grown up down the street from us and she had battled depression for many years and finally had given up the fight. And the people that gathered were grieving. And yet some were trying to distract themselves with casual, chat, chatty conversation Others trying to catch up with old friends. Others just scrolling their phones. Yet the reality of death had gathered us. And the pain and the hardship of life and loss was front and center. You couldn't escape it. It sat in a coffin staring. And it was a reality that we all had to face. And these are great enemies. Depression is a great enemy. Terrible enemy. And so are the addictions and the idols that we try to, that, that, that promise to numb the pain that cries out within us, something is wrong. I need attention. I need a savior. For some, the daily battle is one of identity. In the midst of these two worlds, who am I? Do I really belong? Is there more to life than what I'm living? For others, it's just a battle of security and provision trying to grasp, trying to control. For the orphans that we worked with in Uganda, it was all of the above, wrapped into one package. And for some of us, it is too. Genesis 2 powerfully speaks into these things. From our hearts longing for home, 
to the battles that we face within us and daily. And so today we want to look at God's good design in his creation of man, the gift of a garden home. We want to pray that God would stir us through his word and that he would meet our needs as we come to him together. So let's pray as we come into God's word together. Lord, you know what I can't see, right? That what we can't see, you know the hearts of each person here. You know the needs that we have carried into this place. and You know the joys and you know the sorrows. And so, Lord, would you stir our hearts to behold Christ as we've sang and as we've prayed. And now as we come into your word, that it would be alive. And that, Holy Spirit, you would work in us. That you'd wash your bride this day and make her beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read the passage, so let's just read it. We're going to read from Genesis 2, from verse 4 through 17. So hear God's word as you read along silently with me. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelim and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Through Genesis 1, we saw God the creator. We saw him make man and woman in his image as royal son and daughter. Commissioned to fill the earth with royal sons and daughters who love and worship God. Who exercise his dominion on the earth And we saw the God of rest who sabbaths and who works from Sabbath. We saw the gospel realities that these point to and which find their greater fulfillment in Christ and his church and his work, his dominion among the nations of the world. Hmm. There we go. Before we get into the creation of man, there are a few introductory things that we need to look at in this passage so that we can understand the overall passage better. And a passage like this is loaded. It contains far more than what what I can hit. This is brief. Um, There's a number of of very good books that I would recommend. Um, I'm forgetting the name of of the one that I was going to recommend. You can ask me later. or I'll I'll post it on Basecamp. Um, But there's great, great uh, tools that that help walk through uh, the plethora of beauty, uh, saturated uh, images that come out of Genesis 2. But for us, as we come in, I want us to notice right off the bat uh, that Moses is highlighting this section in poetic form. So if you look at it, it's sort of set off differently than the rest of the text, right? And that's, again, there's a a poetry to it. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to see it later on in chapter 2. After Eve is created, Adam is going to wax poetry in verse 23. We're going to find it at the curse in chapter 3. 
and on throughout. And so uh, the poetry is, is leading us, really tying uh, what is before and it's tying forward into what's going to come ahead. And I'll come back to that. But notice in verse 4, he starts out, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So generations were very important to ancient Israelites. Who you came from, who's your daddy, and who's his daddy, and his daddy, and and what is the line that leads you back uh, to the beginning or to as far as you can trace it. Um, These generations for Genesis is going to use this as a literary device, though. And it's going to do this in a way that signals forward movement through the book. I hadn't picked up on that. It was actually Peter who pointed it out. I said, wow, how have I not seen that? You know, see, he starts out in 2.4, these are the generations. But if you go over to chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what that's going to do is then take us from Adam to Noah. It's going to set up the story of God's choice of Noah. If you go to chapter 6, verse 9, he says, these are the generations of Noah. And in that, he's taking us from Noah to his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And you can walk through the book, and we'll do that as we preach through Genesis. But it's leading us forward into a new focus of, of, of what Genesis is addressing and each of the major characters as we walk through the storyline. But here in 2, verse 4, it's a little bit of a different language than we find in all of the other genealogy passages because here it's the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and all of the others it replies to a man and his offspring but here it's not it's the generations of the heavens and the earth and some have argued that it's better to translate it you know so it's not doesn't sound confusing because i mean heavens and earth don't produce offspring right So maybe the NIV's translation, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and other translations like that. Unfortunately, when I read that type of translation, it makes me think that this is a a secondary or a parallel account to chapter 1, as if they're two different accounts. That is not what Moses is doing, and that is not what's happening in the passage itself. And so what is Moses doing? If he's not signaling for us to think that the heavens and the earth created people, which he's already clarified, they don't. It's God. Then what is he doing? Well, he has all of creation in mind. He has in mind the first people from whom all others will flow. He also has in mind the coming fall and the reality of sin and death that has impacted all of creation. And because we can't understand the reality of sin and death and its impact apart from Genesis 2. We can't. And so we want to see this section as a whole, right? So from chapter 2, verse 2, all the way to chapter 4, verse 26. And as you walk through it, it, it leads from the creation of man and then woman with the poetry to then the fall with its poetic section, and then to Cain and Abel, and we see this reality of sin and its work, uh, and then really it comes to the end and you get this crazy poetry from Lamech, who is of the offspring of Cain, and that's the poetry that closes the section. And what's Lamech doing? He's boasting to his wives. Oh, wait a minute. Adam had Eve. Now there's wives, not one, but more than one. And what's he boasting? He's boasting, this is in Genesis 4, verse 23, he's boasting that he's killed a man. Who does that remind us of? Cain. And then he proclaims if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. It's like he's boasting and you see that sin has multiplied and it's taking what God has made good and it's turning it upside down. But that's not how the section ends because it's actually going to end with God appointing a son, an offspring, and that will be Seth. And then what do you find? There is hope as people worship and call upon the name of the Lord. And so even as sin twists and distorts and turns everything upside down, 
Yet God appoints. And there are people of praise who have hope and who worship in the midst of the brokenness of sin and death. So Genesis 2 comes before this. And it's leading us to this. And I think we actually see it in the language of the passage itself. Right? So Moses first is going to tie this, Genesis 2, backwards. So when we hear the language, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. What does that remind us of? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he's tied it back, and now he's going to move it forward. Look at what he says. The heavens and the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made what? The earth and the heavens. What's he done? He's just inverted it. He's just reversed the order. Now, it could just be a poetic device. I don't want to read into it, um, but I see something. He's signaling something that's coming. There is a turning upside down of what God has made good that we're going to see in the book. Okay? So, look at verse 5. This is when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Okay, why had these not yet sprung up? Well, he tells us, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, this is helpful, because rain is going to definitely make us think ahead of Genesis 6, where God is going to judge Sin, that's true, but rain is also going to bring about uh, uh, the growth of the bush of the field. And so the, the field being the outer place, it's, it's not the cultivated place, it's the uncultivated. And, and as it rains, the bush of the field is going to come about. But what about the, the, the small plant of the field? Why does that matter? Well, first, obviously it hadn't rained, but because there's no man to work the ground. And it's man who's going to work and cultivate and who's going to nurture the little plant, or the herbs, you could translate it, uh, that, that are going to grow. And that requires man digging and man working. And there, there is no man yet. So why introduce this? Because when you read it, you're kind of like, okay, this is kind of funny language. Why introduce this before talking about the creation of man? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 17. After sin comes into the world, what does God say to Adam? He says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat what? The plants of the field. I think there's a parallel imagery, the bush of the field and thorns and thistles. You know, it's similar. You get this, this imagery with the, the plants of the field. And then look what he says in verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. We're going to read that in a minute. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so Genesis 3 has laid out this order right? You get, because of the fall, you get the, 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 the thorns and the thistles, the small plants, you're going to work the ground, you're going to sweat, you're going to eat from it, and then you're going to go back to the ground. Now go back to Genesis 2. Look at the imagery, look at the parallel. No bush of the field. There was no man, there was no rain, no man to work it, right? Uh, so this is before the time where sin turns everything upside down. And then what's God going to do? He's going to form the man from the ground, and what's he tell him over here? You're going to go back to the ground. All right? And so there's a really beautiful poetic parallel that takes place within the two passages that tie them together. So even as we're back in Genesis 2 and we're thinking about creation, we're thinking about it with an eye forward. Because sin is going to twist all that God has made good. Sin is going to take what is good, turn it upside down. But God has a purpose, and God has a plan. And so as we come into this, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, why speak of it as the generations, uh, even though it's not technically a genealogy? It's like Moses is saying, this is the reality of human sin in the light of God's good creation. And 
human sin in the light of what God has made as good is horrendous. Everything upside down. For us who live on this side of the fall, the upside down is normal. It's how we see the world. It's how we view each other. It's how we naturally respond. But it isn't normal. Genesis 2 is normal. This is what God has made as good. And this is what's going to be foundational and what shines light on what is yet to come. And so it's as if it's screaming out, there's something wrong in creation. This is what God has made normal. And so then Moses is going to introduce us to the main character of the, of the book, of all that we will see, and definitely of Genesis, and definitely Genesis 2. Who's the main character? It's not Adam and Eve. That's tend- when we read stories, we, you know, the creation of Adam. Actually, that's not what Moses wants us to think. He wants to just unveil who is this God of creation that he's introduced in chapter 1 as God, Elohim. And here in chapter 2, we find that, that this is in the day that, look at the name he uses, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God. We find it here. We're going to find it in verse 4 where he says, uh, that's where that is, that the Lord God made the the heavens and the earth. We find it in verse 5. The Lord God had not caused rain and there was no man to work. In verse 7, the Lord God formed the man and breathed into his nostrils. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden and put the man. Verse 9, the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. 16, the Lord God commanded the man. 18, the Lord God said, I'll make a helper. And you could go on. Do you get it? What's the emphasis? Can you say it back? It's the Lord God. Kids, did you hear that? Who's the emphasis? The Lord God. He's the main character of the story. Why change names? Why use God general in Luganda? It's Katonda. It's just God. Why use God in one and then Lord God in two? Who were the readers? Who were the first listeners to Moses' writings? Do you remember? We've talked about it, how important that is as we read through the storyline. It's Israel. And who had, who had God revealed himself to be to Israel? What was his name? Remember when they, Moses even said, when they asked who has sent me, who will I say? What did God say? I am. I am. And his covenant name, Yahweh, is revealed. Because Yahweh is who he is. It is he is the covenant God. He is the faithful and loving God to his people, abounding in hesed, in steadfast love and mercy. This is who he is. He is Yahweh. And so Moses comes and he writes in chapter 2, making a distinction because right here, who is doing these actions? It is Yahweh God. It is the Lord. It is the covenant making and keeping God. You think it began with you when God brought you out of slavery? No, no. From the very beginning, he has been the God who has made man and set his affections on his people and entered into relationship. It's who he is. And so again, Moses is signaling for us as we read it, our our ears are perking up like, what is this Lord God going to do? We're going to find that as he introduces man. And we see who God has revealed himself to be. So first of all, he is the master crafter. Look at it in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. He formed him from the dust of the ground. He, He formed him. He crafted him. This is different than all of creation, right? Where God brings forth. Here with Adam, it's a whole different thing. Just like with Eve, it's going to be a whole different thing. Very unique. Very special in design. And so God crafts him like a potter with his clay. Adam is God's workmanship. And there's no other way to view it. 
to every detail, even him not having a belly button. It's an old joke where people argue, and I just settled it for you. We see God the master crafter, but we also see God the life giver. And this is a beautiful picture because as God forms man from the ground, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is intimate language. Don't miss it. This picture of God breathing life into his nostrils. One commentator said this, and I loved it. He said, it is as though God had waked him into life with a kiss. I thought, wow. God is close, and God breathes life where there is no life. Breathes it in. Reminds me of the picture that God gave to Israel years later. Even in their rebellion, he likened them in Ezekiel 16 to an abandoned child who was wallowing in in its blood, helpless to do anything, as good as dead on the side of the road. And God says, I passed by you and I saw you in your blood and I spoke to you in your blood, live. I spoke to you in your blood, live. God speaks, live. And there is life. Job captures this image. He wrote in Job 33, verse 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. That's interesting because Job was not made and breathed into like Adam. And yet he likens it the same picture of the creation story. What about you? What about me? We think scientifically, right? I mean, Job, he was born by, by his mother producing him. And, and then he came out of the womb and he breathed because that's what people do. But what does Job say? It's the breath of the Almighty that gives me life. Isaiah 42 verse 5 says this. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So as we see the Trinity at work in creation, here is the Father creating through the Word, through His Son. And we see the Spirit of God, the Father speaking life by the Son, by the Word, and the breath of life through the Spirit entering into Adam and he becomes a living creature. Made in the image of God, given life by the breath of God. Wouldn't it have been great to behold that first breath? I've had that privilege with each of my kids to get to be there and to receive them. I remember with Isaiah, is he going to breathe? Is he going to breathe? And then suddenly, you see that breath. It's usually more of a cry. Wow. What brought that breath? Who gave that life? That was God. For everyone seated in this room, you breathe because God. And so God makes Adam. He gives him life. And then he prepares something for him. Like a good father does for his his son or his daughter. Says that in verse 8, that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And and chronologically, we don't know how this takes place. I mean, did he make the man and then... That's not the point. God had prepared a place for his son. This royal son who will image his royal father is given a place to come and to dwell. And God has designed it perfectly. And he puts him in there. And out of the ground, he makes to spring up every tree. Listen to the language. That's in verse 9. And again, listen to it like we've been listening to the whole passage, listening forward. He made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Remember Eve's evaluation of the tree, right? That's the same language. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here the picture is beautiful. It's this, this lavish garden in the midst of Eden. This, this place of Eden where God dwells, where it's, it's, it's his land. It's a, a plentiful place. He puts, plants a garden, makes the place where he will come and enjoy his son and his daughter. And out of that land, out of Eden, flows a river. And that river goes into the garden. And that language is interesting uh, in verse 10 flows out of Eden to water the garden, right? So this land of Eden coming into this garden, watering it, and from there it goes out into four directions. And it really is an image of these waters, these these waters of life, in a sense, going out into all of the earth. And it's filled with precious gold, uh, precious stones. Uh, It's it's an abundant uh, waters and land, and, and that is what God has surrounded uh, Adam with in the garden. God has this global plan, and we see it here in Genesis 1 and 2, where he's giving us shadows and pictures of something greater yet to come. And the images here would have drawn into the minds of Moses' readers the tabernacle, right? Because in the tabernacle, as they're listening to this, it's like, wow, you know, you get the Holy of Holies, and out of the Holy Holies, you get the, the, the holy place. And, and from the, the holy place, you go out into the outer court, right? This, this in flowing out and flowing out. And then you get this language from Ezekiel 47 of this renewed temple with waters just flowing out of it. It's a glorious picture. It all is leading to something wonderful. Eden is the true sanctuary where God dwells and offers life through a tree of life and satisfaction through his waters. There's nothing better. Life and satisfaction in the presence of God. That's Genesis 2. And look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and the English just uses the word put him in the garden. But it's a different put than you found up in verse 8. Verse 8 says that he put him in the garden whom he had formed. He, he changes the word. And again, we're reading forward. And what word does he, he use? He uses a verb tense of, of the word Noah. It, literally, God Noah's Adam into the garden. He rests him in the garden. And we're going to find a play on this word later as, as, God, or as, Adam, or as Noah's father names him Noah, hoping that he will bring them rest from the curse of this ground, right? And so again, we're looking forward. This is the place of rest. God who rests, right? He rests man in the place of his presence where then he commands him to work and keep. And so the God who provides is also the designer. And he has a design in this sanctuary of Eden. And so out of resting, being rested, Adam will work. Adam will keep. And again, maybe last week you heard a sermon about Sabbath forward and working out of rest and seeing how that plays forward. And again, it's pictured here. But here, what a great design that God gives us because we live in a culture, again, where everything's upside down, right? Uh, It's confusing. What is man? Who is man? Who has God designed man to be? What does it mean to be a man? And how do I raise a boy into manhood? We are a confused culture. And yet God's design is so clear because we were made by him and for him and then we were entrusted with something beautiful as imagers, as royal sons of our father. And what is it? It's just two words right here. Two first callings or purposes of manhood that Adam is entrusted with. He's called in Eden to work and to keep. Well, what does it mean to work. The language, again, is the language that we're going to find 
uh, later in the tabernacle. And that shouldn't surprise us at this point. We're like, of course. It's like Moses has just picked this giant picture of a tabernacle or of a sanctuary, only it's, it's a garden. And so as we see later, uh, you can look at Numbers chapter 3, or I can read it. Listen to what Moses commands the priests for the tabernacle in Numbers 3. It says this from verse 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. And listen, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister in the tabernacle. They shall guard, same word, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and they shall keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister before the tabernacle. And so there's this this working and this keeping. And to work, it's a beautiful word. It's cultivating, it's nurturing, it's bringing life out of death. And and that's a great job that he's going to have in the garden because he's not going to just sit around and be like, look at all the things God's making grow. He's going to take what God has made and he's going to just cultivate it better. He's going to expand it out, right? He's going to make it beautiful. He's going to nurture it. And then he also is called to protect it, to defend it, and to keep it, which means what? That there must be enemies. I don't know who they are, but if I'm defending, if I'm keeping, if I'm protecting, then I'm on the watch. I'm going to defend. I want to protect I think it's interesting that in Ephesians 5, Paul uses the language that husbands are to uh, nourish and cherish their wives. I think it's a play on the same words, right? There's this beautiful imagery. It takes us right through this priesthood that's going on, that's being imaged right here with Adam, who's called to work and to keep a garden home before before he is even entrusted with Eve. He has a clear purpose. He has a responsibility. And we find these days, as we see these things twisted upside down, that instead of cultivating, what do men do? They tear down or they take. We use power to take or to abuse. Or we, we, we work in overwork to try to find our identity there. Or we're lazy and we don't want to work. And again, our flesh fights against us on all of these things. Instead of being defenders and protectors, we're those who will take from. Of course, we know the pornography industry gives testimony to that. As men, we don't protect. It's not just men, women as well. But there's something in the core of manhood. You are made to work and to keep. You are alive when you are nourishing and cultivating and defending and protecting. That's who he's made us to be. And that's leading us forward into something even greater. Because as we look around, we see the the decimating boyhood. We could say boys in men's clothing, right? They're not men. They're, They're pretending. A culture that distracts itself with its idols and loves what doesn't satisfy, what doesn't deliver. We are a people longing for relationship. And even as men, we get trapped in our individual little worlds in a false masculinity of individuality when we were made for relationship with God and one another. Within all of us, there is a rending of home, a longing for something greater than what we have now. And we know that's going to come in the text, even as the passage ends with the command, because God gives the commands, and he is to steward the command. You may surely eat of every tree, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one, because in the day you eat of it, you will die. And at the center of the garden isn't man. It's not Adam. He's not the center. What's the center? The tree. That's the center. It's life, and it's death. God's command guards and upholds and protects the center. And it's God's command that we are given and entrusted with to steward. We'll see how that's going to lead us into chapter 3. But the coming fall and the turning upside down of God's good creation is not the beginning and it's not the end of the story. 
Because God was working a plan in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And you know what? The gospel writers want us to see this. In fact, if we had a couple of hours, if I were in Uganda, I would do it. (laughs) Hey, we're actually going to now take the next two hours and we're going to go through the gospel of John. Yeah! right. Because the gospel of John takes the themes of Genesis 1 and 2 and just shows the richness of all of these themes being brought about in Christ. And John intentionally does this, right from John 1.1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And who is the Word? It's Christ, Jesus, and the Word became flesh, and what? Tabernacled among us. We translate it in the English, dwelt among us. It's tabernacle language. He tabernacles. Oh, we're like, well, okay, this is serious. All right, John 2, we see water is now flowing to wine, and that's, that's a prophetic picture of, of what is to come, this greater bride and bridegroom and the, the, the abundance, right, of God's provision. We find that in John 3 that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. In John 4, there is a water that satisfies and that wells up to eternal life. In John 5, there's a Sabbath rest. You believe Moses? You need to believe me. In John 7, rivers of living water. You see it? That's just a taste. Jesus calls us to himself because he is the greater Eden, the greater garden. He is the place where God comes and tabernacles among his people. He is the true and greater Adam. In John 17, we get this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Listen to just a little taste of the language. See if it triggers any any thoughts of what we've just read in Genesis 2. John 17, verse 4, Jesus prays this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Okay. Verse 8, I have given them your words. Hmm. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. Do you think that language is just by chance? He's fulfilled the work of the Father. He's guarded his people. He's given them the word. Like he has overcome. He has fulfilled where Adam is going to absolutely fail. But he doesn't just do it as the second Adam, though he is the greater Adam. He does it as the place that you come and find life. He does it as the one who through his spirit brings in us a well of eternal life through his, his spirit, the rivers of living water. Right? He invites us to come into to himself and he became our high priest. And it's after John 17, where does Jesus go? Into a garden where he prays and he's wrestling and he's tempted. But he says, Father, not my will. Your will be done, right? He submits to the Father. And then he dies the death that we deserve because you and I are just like fill in the blank, faithless Adam. Jesus bore our sin on that tree. He took the death that we deserve and he overcame He rose again victoriously that we might know his lavished grace, abundant, that we might be given a new name, that we might be invited into a new home. Even where the darkness seems overwhelming, there is light that penetrates, and that light is Christ. Do you believe this? No matter what you've walked through in your own life, in your journey, no matter where you feel like God has abandoned you, Christ knows how you feel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, as our perfect high priest, knows our struggles, knows where we have failed, and he alone enters into those places and can bring healing into the broken places. Did you know that if you're in Christ, 
He has breathed life into you. Did you know that? He passed by you and he spoke live. As Ephesians 2 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with him. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are his what? We are his workmanship. We are his crafted workmanship. We are his, his poem that he's writing. We are the, the clay that he is making. We are. There, there is a, a greater work. And just as God took Adam and crafted him and breathed life, that's exactly what he's done. To breathe life into you. And he's crafting you. And then that passage says that we, were, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Which means he's been with you in the past and he's with you going forward. And he has a purpose because you are his workmanship. And so we come to Genesis 2 and we're like, wow, how awesome. Look at how he made Adam. That's so cool. Oh, boy, he's really going to mess it up. Um, we're on the other side where we've already messed it up. And then God comes to us and he has crafted something new and beautiful. And he's given us life. And he has purpose for you in his son. No matter how you feel, your life is not a mistake. He has crafted you. My friend Grace in Uganda, Grace Nasaka, beautiful treasure of Christ, given her life to care for the fatherless, oh, poured out so much where you and I would have run away saying, this is too hard. Grace stuck through it, faithful, um, knowing God as her husband and and her provider, her father. But boy, she struggled with these truths because she was born from, a, with, never knew her dad. Her mother was 14. She wasn't wanted. She was raised by her grandmother. She always felt like she didn't fit. She didn't belong. And she would say, how can God bring good when I was even born in sin? Of course, there's a passage of scripture that echoes that, right? Because that's who the gospel's for. To be able to say, grace, you are his treasured possession. Like God is the God of reversals, right? Just as we see Genesis 2 reversing into 3 and going forward, God meets us here and reverses it again into something greater. And he does that throughout scripture. He takes all of what seems crazy and unredeemable and he redeems it and he does it for great good. Grace, you're his treasured possession. Grace. You are his, and he loves you, not because of what you've done for him, but because of Christ and because you're his. That's it. Revelation 22 really gives us the end of the story. If you relate to grace in one way or another, the truths of the gospel that you struggle to believe. There's something powerful about, about just having them spoken over us. I love it when my wife preaches the gospel to me. It's one of my favorite things. And then I love after receiving it to hear her say, preach the gospel to me. Like, you just preached it to me. I need to hear it too. Okay. Uh, Revelation 22 really culminates all of this because we see it coming together as John writes, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the, the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I love that picture. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, these royal sons and daughters, worshiping in a better Eden where God dwells with his people 
and the nations are set free. What an awesome picture. And that's where we're headed. And yet here we are living between these two worlds. God preparing home. And yet we're here. We've got good news. Because in John 14, as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, right? I'm going to go. Just as the Father had prepared the place, Jesus is going to prepare a place, a home, a greater home. We just read about it. But then he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. This is John 14. I love that phrase. And then he goes on and says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Did you catch that? Is it future? No, it's now. You believe in Christ, God comes and he brings home to us. We await future home, but there's a taste right here and right now. He invites us into home with him and with each other. And it's a home where we are safe, where we are able to bring our struggles, depression, broken places, and let light shine into the darkness. A place where we are a people who are no longer bound but are set free, whom he is setting free. Home is the place where God dwells with his people and where his people dwell in his presence. And we who are his temple, his body, as we gather, we gather as a family proclaiming home. And you're home here. You're home with his people. You're home where he is with you, dwelling right here. As you sit in your living room with your cup of coffee and your Bible, you have a taste of home because he is the God who is with us who brings rest. He is our life. He is our satisfaction. And do you know what's awesome? Is that this table right here, we get to come home and sit at table with our Lord Jesus Christ. And by his spirit, we get to enjoy our Father. And we get to remember that our life is in him. It's not in us. And we see that body, it's broken. It's Christ and his blood shed. It's Christ. And we partake together and we proclaim Christ, the one that we long for, the one who has made us for himself. Let's walk in the hope of the gospel and in the truths of what he has prepared for us as his body and his family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of Genesis 2 and just feeling like we've just scratched the surface. And, um, but God, you know each of us, again, as we prayed earlier, Lord, you know our needs and would you please meet us in those needs, whether it's through the hurting and the, the broken places or whether it's through the joy um, and, and the celebration. God, even as we come to this table as family, we're gonna come some joyful and some sorrowful and thank you that you receive all of that, and, and that as family, we get to, to delight in you together and remember together and make you known together and bear each other's burdens together because we are not alone. We have a Savior who has entered in and who is interceding, and we have a Spirit who is interceding um, before the Father. Thank you, Lord, for the glorious truths of the gospel and the hope that is before us. Amen.